0: What do Rocky Balboa, Cinderella, Luke Skywalker, Katniss Everdeen, and Frodo Baggins have in common? Joseph Campbell wrote a book in 1949 called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and in this book, he argued that there's really only one story. He called it the monomyth. It's the only myth. It's the only story. And Campbell argued that any story worth its salt is actually just retelling that one story. And he called it the hero's journey. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Here's how the hero's journey goes. There's an unlikely hero who gets a call to leave home and enters into a bigger world. They receive guidance from a mentor, and they overcome opposition until they reach their goal, and they return home changed, and the world benefits from all that they've done. You know, Campbell's insight was so profound, Time Magazine magazine actually said that he had one of the most influential books ever written. It was in the top 100 most influential books was this book, Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it was later made popular by a Disney executive who applied Campbell's theory to film. And he circulated a paper and it really affected the film industry. Many of the stories we love have been profoundly influenced and shaped by this. Now, Daniel Blackaby he writes that this story, the hero's journey, it resonates so deeply with us, not because we want to be the hero, although we do, but it resonates so deeply with us because it's true. That this story arc of the hero's journey, it's wired into our brains on a deep subconscious level because it's the true story of what happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that story, the ultimate hero's journey, it's shaped modern consciousness. It's inspired millions of adaptations, and it resonates with us deeply inside because it's true. And this is what caused C.S. Lewis to convert to Christianity. You know, C.S. Lewis, he viewed the great myths and stories of the world as lies breathed through silver. In other words, fancy lies. Which is ironic because he ended up writing some of the best fiction that we've ever had. But his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, he, he argued with Lewis, he said, no, we have come from God and inevitably the myths woven by us though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. And then Lewis responded. He said, you mean that the story of Christ is simply a true myth? A myth that works on us in the same way as the others, but a myth that really happened? In that case, Lewis said, I begin to understand. And several weeks later, he converted to Christianity. You see, the great myths, the great stories of the world, they're not lies, as Lewis originally believed. They're shadows of a a truer story, The, the ultimate hero's journey, the story of Jesus. Now, if this is true of all of the great stories in our world today, if it's true that all of those stories, they point to the story of Jesus, then that must be true of all of the stories within the Bible. And in the Bible, if you were to do a quick inventory, a poll, and you were to say, what is one of the best hero stories in the whole Bible? I think number one would be the story of David and Goliath. In fact, if, if you've never even set foot in a church, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. We all know the story but, but how does that story about David, and really the story of David in general, his life, how does that point us to Jesus, the true hero? How does it illuminate the journey of Jesus, and what difference, this is a more important question, what difference does it make for you today? This story from thousands of years ago, why does that impact your life today, here and now? You know, we first meet David in 1 Samuel 16. Saul has been disqualified as king, and God says to Samuel, Hey, go to Bethlehem, to this tiny little town, and you're going to anoint the next king. And Samuel, he goes, he arrives, and he meets the sons of Jesse. And then Samuel, as soon as he sees the firstborn, a tall, strapping man named Eliab, he says, Surely, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, in this story, the theme of sight is incredibly significant. When Saul is first selected as king, and he's the first king of Israel, it's because of the way he looks. The text refers to King Saul as handsome and tall. Those are the first words used to describe King Saul. He's handsome and tall. And he is tall. Those are two of the first words used to describe me as well. And so I I, I can relate. And when Samuel anoints King Saul, Samuel, he presents him to the people. And Samuel, he says, do you all see the one that the Lord has chosen? Do you see him? And so Saul, he fails. He's rejected. And then Samuel, he comes before Eliab. He sees him and he says, surely this is the one. But God responds, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. This Hebrew word for appearance, it has the same root as the word for sight. God says, don't focus on his seeability. Why? Humans, God says, do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible. But the Lord sees the heart. The the point that this verse, this whole sequence is driving home is that our vision is skewed because it's tilted towards only what is visible, but God sees beneath, God sees the heart. And it's not as if God does not see what's visible. It's not as if God says, well, I didn't know Saul was tall or I didn't know David was short. But what the author is saying is, no, what matters most to God is the heart. It's the heart. And and it's important to point this out because this is the exact opposite of what some of us grow grow up believing, isn't it? What we tend to believe is, no, God cares most about what's visible, about the appearance. So keep up appearances. Act your part. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't ever make a mistake. Sometimes we think about God. God cares more about what's visible. But God is interested way more in what's internal. And maybe you need to hear that today. That more than your church attendance, more than your good behavior. God cares about you and your heart. The the narrative goes on and, you know, Samuel. He says, God, what about Eliab? And and then God says, no, let me tell you who I see. And then the youngest boy in this whole family, a shepherd, he wasn't even invited to the party because he was not in the running. He comes before Samuel. And then God says this, rise and anoint him. This is the one so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now shortly after this, David is sent to bring his brothers food. They're off at war, and David is at home, and so as his father, Jesse, says, go and bring your brothers bread and cheese. It's the first pizza in the whole Bible. Bring your brothers bread and cheese, and so David, he goes, and he's alarmed when he gets there because there is this Philistine warrior who is a giant who is mocking the God of Israel. And David can't believe it. And this warrior, this Philistine warrior, he's challenging anybody who is willing to fight that they would represent Israel and he will fight with them. And no one is willing. And David, he says, who is this? Who is this who defies the armies of the living god and his brothers they mock him. They so say you just want attention. They question his motives, but David is determined and he goes before Saul and David says this to King Saul, he says, "Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant I will go and fight him." Now, I'm sure Saul is relieved because finally someone and Saul would, would have been the person to fight, but he w- was not willing. But Saul, he says to him, to this shepherd boy, he says, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. In other words, David, this is a trained killer. He's three times your size. David responds, your servant, I have killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul says, okay, okay, go, go for it, but at least put on some armor. And and Saul gives David his armor, but it doesn't fit, as you can imagine. And David, he responds, he, he says to Saul, he says, I can't go in these, I'm not used to them. So he took them off, And verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, he chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. One thing that I just love about David in this story is that he knows who he is. That he is differentiated enough that he is able to say no the armor doesn't fit he's not pulled off course by the expectations of his brothers the expectations of saul Now, somebody said to me years ago they said god has a plan for your life but so does everybody else and how true that is god has a plan for your life but you know what so does everybody else and part of the work that we all have to do is discovering and discerning who God made us uniquely to be. Several years ago, I was struggling with a particular expectation I had for my life and for my leadership, and I was struggling with it. And I met with a wise mentor. And I'll never forget, he said to me, he said, you know, Matt, maybe this expectation for you, this is like Saul's armor, and it doesn't fit. But, Matt, what you do have, what God has given you is your stones and your sling, and it's enough, and it radically shifted my perspective, and maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe what you need to hear today is that the one who God calls into battle is the same one that he has made and designed and equipped for the battle. Listen, whatever you're facing today, God has called and equipped you uniquely for that task. So David, he gets his five stones and, he, and then he goes out. You know, some traditions say, based on 2 Samuel 21, that Goliath had four brothers. And that David, maybe David's thinking, I got five stones, one for each of you. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but whether or not that is true, David's confidence is indomitable. And he goes, and he approaches, and Goliath sees him coming, and Goliath is offended that this is the warrior who would come and fight him. And Goliath, he says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, I'm pretty sure that's not a good thing, being fed to the birds and the wild animals. The the picture here is, David, I'm not just going to defeat you. I'm going to torture and humiliate you. But David, he says to him, he says, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied, and this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. Anybody else want to fight just reading these words? and What will be the result of this? David, he goes on and he says, "'All those gathered here, everyone who's here, "'will know that it is not by sword or spear "'that the Lord saves for the battle, is the Lord's, "'and he will give all of you into our hands.'" This is where David's confidence lies. It's not in his sling or his stones. It's not in his experience. It's not in his giftedness. It's in God. And at this, Goliath is so angry that Goliath rushes towards David. And David does not hold his position. He does not stand his ground. He runs to meet Goliath. And as he's running, we read in verse 49, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. The the battle had barely begun and it's over. Verse 50, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword In his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And this victory over Goliath, it results in a greater victory. Look at verse 51. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Israel won. Now, if you know the story of David, David does not ride off into the sunset. In fact, the next 20 years are probably the hardest 20 years of his life. He is on the run. Even though he's anointed to be the next king of Israel, he's not treated like it. He's persecuted. But in spite of all of King Saul's attempts to murder David, David never retaliates. He forgives Saul. In fact, he weeps at the news of Saul's Death, And then David officially becomes king, and he's a great king. Listen, he, he's the best king Israel ever had. But in spite of all of that, he still has flaws. He commits adultery. He ends up committing murder. He doesn't trust God all the time. He counts his men rather than trusting God. But even through all of these failures, David remains a man after God's own heart. That's why we love David. He allows the brokenness of life to break him and he comes back to God, every time. And towards the very end of his life, David gets a promise from God, and we read about it in 2 Samuel 7. This is so significant in the storyline of the Bible. God says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, right here, it seems like God is talking about David's son, Solomon. And in a sense, he is. But, but God pivots to look beyond Solomon. Because we read statements like this. God says in verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom, this king, forever. I will be his father And he will be my son. Solomon's kingdom doesn't last forever. Listen, the great kings of Israel, Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah, their kingdoms last 70, maybe 80 years at best. None of them have an eternal kingdom. So who is this about? This is about the Messiah. The promised king throughout the Old Testament that will come. And usher in a a new kingdom. And this promise that we're reading, maybe more than any other verses in all of the Bible, it, it shapes the Hebrew imagination when it comes to their hopes and their expectations for the Messiah. In fact, son of David becomes a messianic title to describe this person, the Messiah. They're the son of David. And the Psalms and the prophets, they talk so much about this figure, this Messiah, the son of David. One of those places I want to show you, it's Isaiah 42. We read lots of verses like this, but Isaiah 42, it says, The Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies." Isaiah, the prophet, speaking through the Spirit of God, says one day the Messiah, like David, will march out like a warrior, raise a battle cry, and defeat his enemies once and for all. And then, centuries later, this person, this Messiah, came, in the most unexpected way, came to the city of David This little town of Bethlehem. And the Messiah's name was Jesus. And when Jesus began his ministry, like David, listen, like David, he was anointed to be king. David by a prophet, Jesus by the Spirit of God at his baptism. But even though Jesus was anointed, just like David, he was not treated like a king. In fact, he was persecuted. There's an interesting story in Matthew 12 where Jesus is walking through some grain fields with his disciples. They're picking grain. They're eating it. And the the Pharisees are angry because they're doing this on the Sabbath. And the disciples, Jesus, they're violating the tradition of the Sabbath. And and Jesus responds to them in a very interesting way in Matthew 12. Jesus, he says, hey, listen, have you ever heard of the time where David went into the temple and he ate the bread that was reserved for the priests alone, why in the world is Jesus bringing this up? Why would he bring this obscure story up? Jesus is very intentionally picking a story from a specific part of David's life. Which part? It's a part of David's life where he is anointed as king, but he is not recognized as king. In fact, he's being persecuted by Israel's leader, Saul. Saul. And when Jesus does this, he is putting himself in the place of David, the anointed but not recognized king, and he's putting the Pharisees in the place of Saul. Now, how does Jesus respond to this persecution? Well, like David, he doesn't retaliate. He trusts God to exalt him at the right time. This is what Jesus does. First Peter, it says, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. But many people, including the disciples, they want to exalt Jesus now. And so they call him the son of David. This becomes a title for Jesus. And they try to make him king. And at the height of all of this messianic enthusiasm, Jesus, he rides into Jerusalem And Jerusalem is in an absolute frenzy. In the crowds, they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there is so much excitement. And there's this palpable expectation that Jesus is the Messiah and that he will win a decisive victory over the Romans. And everything seems to be going great until everything goes wrong. Because soon after this, Jesus is arrested, he's beaten, he's wrongfully accused, and he's sentenced to die on a criminal's cross. And maybe even at that point, at that moment, there was hope. Because if Jesus is the son of David... Maybe people thought, you know, he's going to overcome this. He's going to escape somehow. God's going to send angels to deliver and to rescue him. But Jesus is nailed to a cross in some of the saddest words in the whole Bible. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus died. But something happened on the cross that day that the disciples did not realize, that Rome did not recognize, that evil itself did not anticipate. And the disciples, they would only realize later with hindsight what actually happened. The the apostle Paul, he writes about it in Colossians 2. And this is what he writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. How? How did God do this? He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, when Jesus died that day outside Jerusalem on this hill of Calvary, Jesus actually triumphed over evil and sin and even death itself. You see, contrary to what Rome thought, to even what the disciples thought, the cross was not evidence that Jesus lost the battle. The cross was the battle. And as Jesus was groaning on that cross, he was, in that moment, triumphing over sin and death. Isaiah was right. I want you to look with me again at these verses. Isaiah 42, the Lord will march out like a champion. Jesus, he marched to the cross. As battered and beat up as he was, he marched out to that cross like a warrior Isaiah says, "He will stir up his zeal with a shout. He will raise the battle cry." In Jesus' dying moments, both Matthew and Luke, they say that Jesus let out a loud cry. He groaned. And this was not the cry of defeat. This was a battle cry. And finally, Isaiah says, and he will triumph over his enemies. Through the death of Jesus, he has defeated sin and death forever. Now, here's here's the power of this reality. Just like David's victory, the victory of Jesus was for more than him. Listen, David's critical brothers, his cowardly brothers, his whole people that were afraid, that had no ability to defeat Goliath. Listen, they they did not fight. David fought for them, and they shared in his victory. Listen, we never lifted a finger to defeat our greatest enemy, sin and death and evil itself. And we couldn't have won that fight. But because of Jesus, we share in his victory, and we can say, With the Apostle Paul, we can say, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus gives who the victory? It gives us the victory. And we experience that simply by trusting in Christ Now listen, what what do we do with this today as we move towards trying to apply this to our lives? Listen, this, this message and really this whole series is about how we see Jesus. I mean, if we walk out of here today, if you leave this series and you have a bigger view of Jesus, then this has been well worth our time. Because I know this to be true. However you see Jesus today, when you get to heaven, when you're in the presence of God, you will say, man, my view was painfully small. It was too narrow. None of us will ever see Jesus, the magnitude of who he is, the way we need to. So we, we need things to widen our gaze. And what we need to see today specifically is that Jesus is the warrior king Jesus is not just a prophet, he's not just a priest that intercedes with God on our behalf, he is a king, and he will return one day, all things will be put under his feet, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess, he is Lord, he is king. But what difference does this make now? This vision of Jesus as the warrior king, I'm going to just give you two implications of this reality for you and for me First, when we see Jesus this way, when our hearts see Jesus as the warrior king, it gives us extraordinary poise. Extraordinary poise. Listen, the, the, the story of David and Goliath at its core, it's not a story about an underdog who over, overcomes. It's not a story about how we can face the giants in our lives, ultimately. It's a story that points us to Jesus who fights the battles that we never could. But what is also true is that we deal with struggles and conflict and challenges in our lives. Many of us today are dealing with struggles and conflicts and challenges. And as as followers of Jesus, as we do this, we're invited through the pages of Scripture to remember the victory of Jesus as a way to reframe how we are seeing our struggles now. This is so important. This is what Paul is doing in Romans 8. Paul, he says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And Paul is not saying that nothing can be against us. What Paul is saying is that if God is for us, who Jesus is, and if Jesus conquered death, then it doesn't matter what's against you. makes no difference. There is a confidence, a peace, and a poise that is available to us, but we have to work out the implications. And this is what Paul is doing in in Romans 8. He's saying, think, think about it. What Jesus has done, if God is on your side... I want you to just think about the soldiers that day on the battlefield. And just imagine, w- one of the soldiers, he misses the moment. I mean, can you imagine how sad that would be? He, he, he's checking his phone. He's talking to someone. What, he's eating lunch. And he misses it that David kills Goliath. And I just want you to imagine that that soldier, he's still anxious. And he comes back to his friends on the battlefield. And he's, he is nervous because... They might lose, right? So he's fearful, he's afraid. Now we would say, somebody needs to just shake that guy and say, it's over. It's over. Listen, men and women, we can miss it. We can miss it. We can fail to work out the implications. We have victory through, through Jesus and whatever we're facing, and again, the challenges are real. At the end of the day, Whatever you are facing, it does not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And when we let that sink into our bones, we have peace and poise now. This is not just about heaven. This is now. Because no matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to your son, to your business, you're okay. If this is true, if Jesus is the warrior king, then no matter what happens, we can have peace. Poise. And the other implication of this is listen, if we see Jesus this way, then it it produces in us unparalleled allegiance, extraordinary poise, and unparalleled allegiance. The, The men who were watching David on that day, none of them felt neutral about David afterwards, like, you know, he's okay. God, I wish he was a little. Yeah, I mean, nobody felt neutral. If, if you know the story, their hearts are captured by David. They sing songs about him. They they actually say to to David, they say, "Listen, we'll follow you anywhere, even to death." And they do. They are loyal to him. In, in many people, including me, at times, we we approach Jesus as a good example to follow, as a really good giver of advice. You know, like, Jesus, thank you. That's great insight. But if we see Jesus this way, listen, it is impossible to be casual. Truly. A king like this, how can we give him anything except everything? If this is who he is, if if Jesus is king, Then there is no loyalty, whether to your company or to a political party or to a country or even to your family. There is no allegiance that can be higher than him because he's the king. And and we must throw ourselves at his feet and say, we'll follow you anywhere. And that's the invitation of this, to see beyond David, to see the true hero's journey, the bigger, the better warrior king and to say, Jesus... You have my allegiance, and I'll follow, I'll follow. So how do you see Jesus today? Where in your heart is your vision blurry? Where do you not have poise? Because we can come in here, and we can sing, and you know, we can read the Bible, and we can still be a mess. I mean, we're 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 anxious. I feel this way. You know, we, there's so many things tugging at our hearts. How do you need to let the weight of who Jesus is as the warrior king sit on your heart today? How do you need to say, you know what, Jesus? I have been more loyal to X, Y, Z than I have to you. And today, Jesus, I'm, I'm coming as broken as I am. Say, I want to follow you. You know, the the New Testament, it opens with these words. The genealogy of the son of David, Jesus. Opening words. Did you know that the last words in our New Testament, the last words in our Bible, that are attributed with Jesus saying them directly. There's a couple verses after this, but, but this is the very last thing that Jesus says in the Bible. Revelation 22, 16, Jesus, he says... I am the root and the descendant of David and the bright morning star. That's how Jesus chooses to walk off. You know, picture mic drop, and you, he, he says, I am the root, I am the creator of David, and I am the descendant of David, meaning I am the true son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. The Bible ends with those words. But those words won't end there because we will say them throughout eternity. As we gather around the throne of Jesus, we will say, Jesus, you are the son of David, you are the Messiah, and you are the warrior king. May that vision come here and now change the way we live here and now. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he is a warrior, that he took on sin and death, and he defeated them decisively, and that one day, Lord, that reality of Jesus and his dominion, that it will be so evident, as the waters cover the sea, Jesus will be king, and we will all bow and worship him. God, thank you that Jesus is an unbelievably good and kind and loving king. But Lord, he's, he still is king, and I just pray for us, God, help us to know what this means to, to live in light of this today. to not let other narratives, other thoughts, which so easily dominate, Lord, to not let them drive us in our anxiety. Lord, to not microwave Jesus down to a size where we can control him. But Lord, just help us today to say, Jesus, everything I have is yours. And so, Lord, now as we just reflect on that and as we sing about the love of our King, that Jesus loves us individually, collectively, Lord, just would you continue to change us? We give ourselves to you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.